Hey, everybody. We're having a, a, an interesting little uh, <laughs> issue with my Zoom. <clears throat> I tried um, booting it off of um, several different computers. And the other computer has uh, really good visual, but the audio is lagging. So it, this is kind of cool, actually. I'm half screen. Um, <clears throat> it could be an omen of uh, <clears throat> uh, my portending death. I can't tell. But this kind of... Uh, I think it's kind of neat. I'm, I'm going to be here, like, you know, talking head. <laughs> so I apologize. Maybe I need to update my Zoom. Um, so I do apologize for that. But anyway, good to go. It's just a little bit different. So welcome back, everybody. Um, I quite enjoy these little thingies, despite this current glitch. Uh, I did want to say a couple kind of housekeeping um, thingies. One is thank you for all the people who have recently signed up for nightclub. You know, we this initial launch is kind of held within that charter uh, where nightclub is just this opportunity, this venue that we created about a year ago, a group of five of us, as a way to explore subtle states. I mean, nocturnal, really nightclub is just a play on the nocturnal meditations. Nocturnal is kind of code word for subtle. And basically what we do in nightclub is explore um, the nature of mind in reality using things like sleeping, dreaming, and dying. Um, and so thank you for those who have come on board. It's always a delight to see these wonderful new faces. And I also wanted to say something. I've been getting some, some um, questions about the Menla program coming. It starts in two weeks. And so this is a little bit of um, shameless self-promotion. Have I, have I shared this story with you? This was great. I, years ago when my first book was published, I was complaining um, to some other writer about, you know, the book signing things and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and and uh, this person said, oh, come on, I mean, get over it. You know, there, there are times in life for shameless self-promotion. <laughs> and so here's a little bit of shameless self-promotion for um, this program that I'm doing with Bob Thurman. It starts two weeks from tonight. People have been asking a little bit about it. We, we cut the price in half. <clears throat> so the price is half what it used to be. We want to make it as available as possible. It, used to, it was originally scheduled as a week-long program, part of this four-year series that I'm doing. Um, by the way, the second session of this four-year thing will be launched in August at Chambala Mountain Center, but that's a different story. So I was gonna, I wanted to do this um, also on the East Coast, and so I connected with Bob Thurman, and he has this beautiful retreat center in upstate New York called Menla. It's just stunning. It was so psyched to go there and spend a whole week, but obviously um, no can do. But the good news is that because Bob is also in lockdown, um, and he's an amazing guy. I mean, if you've never met him or read his stuff, he, he really is unbelievable. He's one of the real fathers in the authentic transplantation of Tibetan Buddhism into the Western world. Um, he and people like Jeffrey Hopkins are really the forefathers of kind of uh, Tibetan Buddhism in the academy. He taught for a number of years at <clears throat> Columbia. He's an emeritus professor there. Um, incredible author, translator of many, many books, including one version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. There are about 10 translations. I've read them all. And Bob's is really good in his kind of uh, wonderfully quirky, idios idiosyncratic way. It's a very colorful translation. And so if you have not experienced Bob, he is truly inimitable. There is no one like Bob Thurman. He's, he just, he speaks his mind, um, which is always delightful and uh, graced with a tremendous sensitivity and kindness and an exhaustive, rigorous intellect. He's really remarkable and I'm super psyched. 
He's going to join us every single day. So it's two weekend programs with an opening free event, by the way, two weeks from today, which, by the way, is my birthday, but don't worry about it. May 28th. <laughs> Flowers and a birthday card will suffice. Um, uh, on the evening of the 28th, we're having a free opening event with Bob. So you can just drop in and, and check us out and see if this event speaks for you. And then the actual program starts the 29th, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, a morning three-hour session, afternoon three-hour session um, for both weekends. You can take each weekend separately. Um, Bob and I will be splitting. I'll be doing mornings. He'll be doing the afternoons, at least half the afternoons. I will be kind of the thread and the core behind the whole thing. Um, and this is going to be a very interesting dance because Bob and I are pinging back and forth what to do. But we're also just going to, you know, really just dance with each other and then with participants. Um, and so what else can I say about that? Um, yeah, I think that's it. There, there's the 30-minute link to an interview that I did with Bob Thurman on the nightclub site, so you can get some sense of him if you have not experienced him. This is one of the things we do in nightclub is I have the great, great good fortune of interviewing some amazing people. And last fall, I did an hour, almost two-hour thing with Bob. So if you want to get a sense of who he is, check it out. But anyways, what we're going to do today is, is we'll start with our one-breath meditation session. Um, it's also just as much for me as it is for you. It's a way for me to stay grounded and connected because I tend to get a little windy, a little speedy. Have you noticed? And that's just because I get so excited about this stuff. And so it also helps me to kind of just connect, stay grounded, and not just get too kind of cerebral. So we'll start with our one breath meditation. And um, a slight kind of augmentation on this is is anchoring the one breath meditation to a, to a, a gesture or a, a mudra. Um, and this is just simply what I do with it. Now when I do it, and again, I do this a lot, I pull my shoulders back, I bring my head kind of in, in harmony with my heart, and there's this gesture of openness. I'm literally physically opening. And so the one breath meditation is an expression of openness, a way to counteract this, you know, kind of insatiable egoic tendency to contract. Um, and so I've done this so long now that through the power, you know, mind is not the same as body, but it's also not different. This is why we use body to work with mind and mind to work with body. And so through what NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, refers to as anchoring, we can associate certain states of mind with, with body. And so for me, what this means is, even now, if I'm just like stretching, automatically it's like, oh, this is the one breath thing, even though I might not have that intent. Um, and therefore I connect it to this kind of um, on the spot meditation. So with all, all that said, let's do our one breath meditation together again with this new kind of mudra of opening. And by the way, for those of you who are formal practitioners of sitting practice, in my opinion, the core central postural instruction is in fact opening and exposing and revealing your heart. Um, same word in Sanskrit and Pali, by the way, as mind, chitta, heart, mind. So it's a wonderful kind of hinge axis for the posture and a way to make us allow us to open and connect. So together, a one breath meditation session. You will therefore have achieved your meditation session for today.
That's it. I love it. And it's also a way, you know, there's, there's so much more going on with these practices than, than normally meets our eye. And in this regard, this insertion of space, it's, it's really kind of a, a little bit of an emergency vaccine where we can inject some space or allow some space into this ongoing narrative immersion, which is in fact uh, what ego is. I mean, ego is nothing more than a narrative immersion. And by interrupting this narrative, saying, excuse me, pardon me, it can kind of deconstruct the usual egoic reactive relationship to phenomenal experience. Um, and this is the great gift, counteracting this unbelievable tendency we have to contract. Because ego, you know, somatically, ego is a contraction. Ego is, is um, a contraction against reality, actually, a contraction against death, a contraction against its own non-existence, basically. And this goes really, really deep, this, this kind of contraction narrative um, in fact, I believe I mentioned this maybe four or five weeks ago. This is such a deep topic that I'm, I'm drafting an entire book on the kind of the relaxation, the opposite of the relaxation response that was written many, many years ago by Herbert Benson, this kind of contraction response and antidotes to it. It's a big deal. Um, and I riff on it a little bit because it has this somatic visceral component. <clears throat> this is something you can feel. And it goes so far down, you know, I mean, arguably, according to many of the wisdom traditions, Buddhist Hindu cosmology, the world really is born, is reified out of these levels of contraction. And it's so endemic in us that, that according to scholars like Reggie Ray, who writes a lot on body work, um, quoting some science, that it's literally in our cells, our tissues, the very fabric of our being is riddled with this type of tension which is a defensive contraction against the truth of emptiness, the truth of ego's inherent non-existence, i.e. The, the, the shattering noble truth of death. So that's a slight sidebar. Um, that's kind of more bardo yoga stuff, but just to augment the power of the practice of opening. And so um, what I want to do is, I, there have been some written questions that unbeknownst to me have been kind of piling up. I was looking at the wrong end of the scrolling list. I thought they came in on top of this document, but lo and behold, they've been coming in on the bottom. So I haven't been seeing them. And so I want to start the, the first few minutes with having Andy read some of these questions. Some of them are, are really quite nice, relatively short, brief answers, if, if that's possible for me. Um, and then like usual, the main kind of thesis of what we're doing here is just hanging out together um, where you get to ask your questions and then challenges. I mean, I love, I love, I do a lot of debate type stuff. Um, and so I love being challenged in, in good constructive debate is, is awesome. It's super helpful. So if you hear something that doesn't land with you and you want to take um, me on, so to speak, or you want to discuss it, it's not just questions, it's offerings. It's challenges, um, obviously, within the kind of polite parameters of debate. Um, but with that said, Andy, if you want to start with a couple of the, the written-in questions, that would be great. That way I can pay homage to some of the people that are sending things. However, I do want to throw this into the mix. I'm open to doing this. Um, it's not like I'm discouraging it, but I always so much more appreciate being able to do this in a live format. 
obviously it gets a little bit tricky if there are more questions than I can address, but I think you understand where I'm coming from around this. So, and if you want to spit some of these out, that'd be great. Sure. Okay, the first question, what is it about human nature that requires us to face major disruptions like pandemics in order to mobilize community? Yeah. Well, I think this ties into the whole narrative immersion thing. You know, we, we live in denial. Ernest Becker wrote a Pul Pulitzer Prize winning book, actually, as he was dying, an amazing book called The Denial of Death. And in so many ways, um, we deny reality. We deny the noble truths that the Buddha articulated and other wisdom traditions put forth. And so we live with our heads in the proverbial sand, a, a pile of sand of our own making. And so it's just, it's just kind of ego's agenda to deny and repress. And this, is, this goes very deep, spiritually, psychologically, that those things that we don't want to face, out of sight is not out of mind. Out of sight is in the unconscious mind, <clears throat> actually into your body. And so really it's a part of ego's incredibly sophisticated avoidance strategy. And it's only when these truths are, are harshly and nobly, in a certain sense, thrown into our lives, like impermanence, death, the pandemic, these kind of shaking the snow globe events, that a page out of ego's story is ripped out, the narrative is interrupted, and we go, whoa, wait a second here, what's really going on? And so this is just what ego does. Ego lives in denial of reality. It is the archetype of that denial. And so therefore, what's approaching us, or the opportunity that we have with things like the COVID virus, as I mentioned earlier, I believe in this course, is like reality concentrate, a really powerful opportunity to look at harsh truths. Um, and then the question is, what do we do with that? Do we just wait to reestablish the narrative? Maybe not such a great idea. That's why I, I sent that quote from Arundhati Roy about um, the opportunities that present us here. But in a nutshell, something like that in relation to that question. So, great. doing my very best. And uh, if my dear friend Joseph is listening, Joseph, I'm doing this for you. Short, succinct answers. Very difficult for me. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, next question. For lucid dreaming, you recommend not texting and using the computer before sleep. Is this due to the light and energy? Yes. I usually, I usually read prayers on my iPad. Will this have a less than positive effect on lucid dreaming? It can. And again, these are all just guidelines. Uh, we're all different. Some people can drink a gallon of espresso before they go to sleep and sleep like crazy. Others can have a sip of decaffeinated coffee in the morning and stay up the entire next night. But as a general rule, and this is just classic you know, sleep medicine, sleep hygiene, especially the blue light from tablets. You know, studies have shown that that is the most inhibitive light for the release of what um, is sometimes called the Dracula hormone, the vampire hormone, melatonin, which only comes out at night. And blue light, and again, studies have shown, I think it's like 93 minutes um, of in inhibition of the release of melatonin. And so as a general rule, these are, implementations of good sleep hygiene. Stay away from blue light, enter this kind of red light district, so to speak, of your own making, pull away from um, tablets, from computers, from artificial light sources as a way to allow the natural circadian rhythm to take over. 
Um, so roughly, if you can, stay away from it. If it's working for you and it doesn't interrupt, you know, be your own guide. These are just fundamental um, guidelines that you have to engage and see if they work for you. Great, thanks. Okay, next question. What is the relationship between karma and merit? And can you speak a little on ego clinging and that connection with karma? Yeah, so the latter part first. I mean, ego clinging is, is a, a, a kind of the expression of um, negative karma, bad habits. And it's not just clinging to self or ego it's, um, alone, it's basically clinging to everything. The mind is extremely sticky. And um, when I do my programs, I often teach an extremely beautiful meditation from Mingyur Rinpoche um, called Open Awareness. It's a really powerful, beautiful practice that invites us to open. Meditation is habituation to openness. Buddha is literally, one translation, the opened one. And so the ego is anti-Buddha, anti-awakening, and therefore it's very sticky. It contracts, it, closed, it closes down, it grasps onto everything. It's like the ultimate sticky paper. Um, and so there's that part of it. it. That's just what ego does. And it's, a, it's kind of its uh, insatiable appetite to grasp as a vo it's a little bit like the image that comes to mind is like if you ever step out on, on uh, some ice in the winter and you're walking down a little uh, incline and all of a sudden your feet just come right out from under you. The natural impulse is just, if there's a handrail, is just to impulsively reach out and grasp to keep yourself from falling. That exact same impulse sublimates virtually everything we do. We are in constant freefall. And we literally don't know when we're going to hit the ground. I mean, hitting the ground is death. We are all in free fall. And uh, on one level, ego knows that. And so it tends to avoid it by just constantly grasping out of fear. I mean, fear is the mood of the self-contraction. And so that's, that sublimates everything. So the grasping thing, I mean, that's just, again, that's just what ego does. That's what ego is. It is appropriated, pinched, grasped awareness. That's what ego is. So the first part of the question, this is a big one, the relationship between merit and karma. In some ways, they're synonymous. Uh, in other ways, merit is a little bit more of a harnessing of karma. And, and to really learn about this in detail, one of the most elegant traditions are the Pure Land teachings. They talk about merit in tremendous detail because it is, in fact, merit that creates the pure land of Sukhavati, for instance. So we tend to think, this is cosmologically really interesting, we tend to think of things like merit in this kind of ineffectual way. You know, it's like, oh, I dedicate my merit at the end of my session. I do it because they tell me to do it. I flap my lips, I don't really mean it. It's because we think, you know, our merit is kind of being thrown up against this colossal reified solid mountain of material reality. Well, reality is not that way. Um, that's a very limited, myopic, constricted way of looking at reality. Reality is not made of matter. Matter is just a really contracted interpretation perspective on reality. It, this world is not made of matter. It's made of this ineffable matrix. You can't put a name on it, but you know we can say we, it's made of mind. Mingyur Rinpoche says it's made of love. His brother, Sogyam Rinpoche, says it's made of essence love. It's made of heart, spirit. It's not made of matter. 
And so if we can come to this radical shift, and, and again, it is, this is a tectonic shift in understanding. If you can make this shift alone in your lifetime, it's huge. Where the world really is not made of matter, it's made of this ineffability thing, whatever you want to call it. And whatever you want to call it, that's a whole different beast of unpacking. Like, what is that? But for our purposes here, once we really understand the world is made of mind, and that, you know, that world, that mind is not the same as mine, but it's also not different, then what I do with my mind has an effect on this world. And in the, in the Pure Land traditions, <clears throat> this effect is so monumental that entire dimensions of reality are actually created out of merit. This world, this earth system, Jambudvipa is actually made in the Kala Chakra Tantra. This is what the great gift of this amazing king of tantras. This world is made of merit, in this case, the collective karma of the human beings that then inhabit this realm, seemingly objectively, not at all objectively. We're co-creators of this matrix. So um, in the Pure Land teachings, the, the, <clears throat> the merit of Amitabha was so enormous. That's what converted... It's like cosmic currency. We accumulate merit on, on the uh, <clears throat> path of awakening. It's literally called the path of accumulation. And if we don't get too literal with this, what happens is you accumulate enough merit, relative truth, good karma, that eventually it kind of, um, you can cash that currency in to absolute um, discoveries. In other words, this merit thing, oh gosh, where to go? It's just so much material. Merit can create entire world systems. Amitabha used his merit to create the pure land of Sukhavati for the benefit of us. Merit for us, if you've had things, just to show you again how big this topic is, if you've had what's called pointing out instructions where a master points out the nature of reality to you, it's a, a fundamental before and after experience, um, both in Hinduism and Buddhism, if you have this experience and, and, and you come out of it like most people do, like 99.9% .9 going, I think I got it, I'm not sure, did I get it? Did you get it? I'm not sure I got it, did you get it? Well, the reason you don't get it is because you don't have enough merit. That's why the first path of the five paths is the path of accumulation. Accumulate good deeds, accumulate good karma, accumulate good habits, accumulate merit. Um, and eventually what happens is that merit matures, transforms into wisdom. That's the third path, the path of seeing. So again, I'll probably leave it at that just because there's so many places to run with it. But this is a really important topic. Study the Pure Land teachings, study the guts of the Vajrayana. And, um, you know, if you're living, if you have the great opportunity to have extended experience with fully realized masters and you still are not kind of getting it, it's because there's not enough merit. And that's why, all, you know, so many examples, the six paramitas, the first five are all about accumulating merit, generosity, patience, exertion, discipline, meditation, all relative bodhicitta, leading to the sixth paramita, which is prajna paramita, transcendent wisdom, insight into reality. So I'm going to leave it there for now, um, just because it, it's, there's just obviously so much to say about it. But I guess the thesis is, Merit has so much more power than you can imagine. Your intentionality, which is what conditions merit, has so much more power than you can imagine. 
And understanding these applications will therefore empower your practice of merit, understanding the importance of the relative aspects of truth, the dedication of merit. Um, this is an enormously important topic, but for the purposes of time, I'm gonna let it ride for now. Really good one. Okay, great. Uh, there's an interesting follow-up question to this. Um, I'll read it to you quick. Okay. Uh, why would this world be created only on the merit of the humans and not on the merit of all beings who are here? Beautiful, beautiful question. Exactly right. It's not just humans. It's not just humans. It's the animal realm. It's the animal kingdom. Yeah, fantastic. Exactly. It's not this anthropocentric view that like, oh yeah, we are the ones that... No, we are, we are co-creators of this cosmos with all the sentient beings that inhabit it, not just us. So that is a beautiful interjection. Um, and also another, you know, blowing your mind wide open. This human realm is just one. Again, Pureland teachings really help you here. This human dimension is just one of 27 states of confused existence. This doesn't include the whole Pureland protector, all the, you know, realms where awakened um, energies abide. And so both of these questions, to me, they're, they're, they're beautiful archetypal questions in terms of men. You gotta raise your gaze and blow your heart mind wide open to look at the world in a much, much bigger way. So that's a great contribution. Thank you for that. Okay, next question. Is there a morning waking practice to transition from sleep to the quote waking state? Getting out of bed and shedding the mist of sleep is more often than not challenging for me. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, you know, uh, several people who are listening, I know have done three-year retreat. And when you do three-year retreat, there is actually a yoga of awakening. Um, it's a little bit beyond the scope for me to introduce that to you, but every single mo morning we did it with our little literally bells and whistles and damarus and things. It was just awesome. <laughs> so what you're saying is a fantastic uh, question again. And there are very traditional, literally yoga of awakening practices. Really for us, for people like you and me, what, what you could consider doing, and, and I do this with my morning meditation. You know, I, I, I'm a fanatic about this stuff. I start and finish every day with practice <clears throat> is a way to kind of sandwich and frame <clears throat> my entire day within this kind of spiritual framework. And so the first thing I try to do every morning is literally set my intention for the day that, you know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, not just for myself, but for the benefit of others. Again, it's this kind of dedicate of motivations, like the implementation of, of what I have taken as the Bodhisattva vow. And so, Oh, I wonder, hold on here. Oh, that helps, Andrew. Oh, there, I was just looking at this. Ah, da, da the light just came on. I just figured this out. Of course, it was my fault. Yay. <laughs> Full view. So, I was just looking up there going, I wonder if it's that thing. So, I apologize for that. My bad. So here's what you can do. This is what I do, is I wake up in the morning and first thing I do is turn my mind back in because I'm a big dream yoga person. First thing I do is, is turn the lens of my mind back in and, and ask myself, self, what were you just dreaming? And so I do a little bit of what's called hypnopompic practice, leading away from the God of sleep. I turn my mind back in, I look back in, I try to recapture, okay, what was that? Was I just dreaming something? Sometimes if there's no capture, I'll turn over 
because memories are lodged in the body and I'll turn over and I'll say, oh yeah, there's that dream. I just left that dream. And then sometimes I'll try to go back in and recapture the dream, what's called wake-initiated lucid dreaming, and then have a short little morning session of um, uh, liminal dreaming. So that's just a sidebar. But then I'll, eventually I wake up and then I will say, you know, a little recitation personal. The, the words aren't important. The feeling's important. Something like, you know, uh, whatever I do today, may it be a benefit for self and other as a way to kind of set the stage and the tenor to perfume my day with this intentionality that is not so self-serving. Um, and I find that that really works for me because, you know, otherwise the default mode network just comes in. The gotta do's, as, as Dan Harris writes about so beautifully in his book, 10% Happier. By the way, one of the best books, excuse me, uh, for an introduction to meditation, Dan Harris is 10% Happier, fantastic. He talks about the gotta do's. You know, you wake up in the morning or you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just infected with the gotta do's, right? So before I flip into the gotta do's, which are like, they're, they're right there waiting, I do this sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, with that said, there, there are, I'm trying to figure out if there's anything I can send you, but I think you can find your own way here. You know, a brief liturgy that you create of your own, something to kind of set the stage. Um, I think practicing a meditation in the morning, even if it's just, just a couple breaths of meditation, it just helps set the stage. It's a little bit like the stem cell phenomena, right? I mean, what this kind of initial stem um, of intentionality that you set at the outset of a day, a moment, a life, whatever, can really kind of perfume your day. And so I think within those parameters, you can make up your own thing, something that gets you out of yourself into, uh, you know, the, into the kind of the spirit of the Dharma, the teachings for the benefit of others. Um, and then if you really want to explore it, maybe send me, send me an email. And there are some specific liturgies and texts um, that, that are written exactly for these sorts of things, but I'll leave it at that for now. So cool. Great. Um, next question. One of the visuals that Andrew raised last night in the class had the words, quote, the end cannot come soon enough, end quote, <laughs> which is what I've always felt. And we are also supposed to be grateful for this human life. That has always been a question for me. I have a fortunate life, but I've always wanted to be done with it. How do I reconcile this life with the cartoon you showed? Well, first of all, I realize it's just a cartoon. Uh, this is not... This is not like some deep subliminal teaching from the Buddha Vajradhara. This is just a cartoon. So take it as such. Um, yeah, I realize, I mean, really, we, we have an extremely precious human life. And, and the precious human life in the Buddhist tradition is defined not just by being in the human form. The preciousness is defined by the accessibility to these wisdom teachings. And again, not just... Buddhist. I, 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 I'm a card-carrying Buddhist, you know, because I follow the Zen adage, chase two rabbits, catch none. I chase the Buddhist rabbit, but I am a deep, deep, deep student of many other traditions. And so the, what makes a precious human life is the, is the realization that OMG, even though there isn't one, OMG, I have the opportunity, I'm presented with teachings that can liberate me from this whole samsaric agenda, can liberate me from involuntary rebirth, 
can liberate me into full-blown awakening. And once you really understand that, once you really realize, and again, this is good merit. This is an interesting wraparound to the merit. The reason you have this opportunity is because your mind stream, if you believe this thing, it's called santana, this mind stream that is now currently represented as you goes back trillions of years to beginningless time. And if you think along these cosmological lines, you're just carrying the baton of a cascade of sentience going back from beginningless time of which you are the latest iteration of. And Padmasambhava says something really beautiful here. If you want to look at your past lives, look at your present situation. If you want to look at your future lives, look at your present circumstance and your actions. And so if you look at your current life, and I, I did this a lot when I was in my retreat, just this kind of personal kind of almost supplication to my own mind stream in terms of, you know, again, you get the idea like, you know, if you believe in this sort of thing. Thank you for all the hard work, the merit that has allowed me, the beneficiary of your, again, everything's in quotation here because is it mind strain? Is it theirs? Don't worry about that for now. The idea is to realize the preciousness of this human condition is largely dictated by the merit accumulated by your previous incarnations, if you believe in this sort of thing, and I do. So this is a wonderful way, wonderful way to tie this into the power of merit, which is why you're not just practicing for yourself, you're practicing for your future lives. You're practicing for the lives of all sentient beings. And again, everything that we're talking about today is awesome because it's all about just getting bigger, bigger, bigger. And you may notice, especially the academic science types, where you know it can get so big sometimes that you start to contract. It's like, wait a second, you know, you're you're talking just woolly new age metaphysics. Uh, no, I don't think so. You just got to take a very close look at the nature of reality um, to see that I, you know, these are massive truths from the great wisdom traditions, not just the Buddhist one. So precious human birth is what we have. The opportunity to to study these teachings here, the Dharma, is unbelievably fortunate, and so. The, the teachings exhort us, you know, we've landed on an island of diamonds and jewels and we should stuff our pockets and fill our backpacks and just do everything we can to accumulate these wisdom teachings um, because there's no guarantee without that that we'll have these auspicious circumstances in the future. So um, for today, Andy, mark a line where we left off. Mm -hmm. um, if, if questions don't come in live because that's the you know, essence of what we do here, we will pick up next week with the other questions that were sent. And again, I, my preference is to do this live thing. But um, obviously, if you need to write some of these things in, I'll do my very best to get to them. But I want to allocate the rest of our time as usual to conversations with you all because that's certainly the most enjoyable part for me. Okay? Great. Well, we do have some hands raised. Uh, so I'm going to start with Glenn. And Glenn, you have the audio to ask your question. Okay. Hi, Andrew. I know you through uh, your participation in Vajrayana Online through Turgar. Oh, nice. I love, first of all, I love the Aurora Borealis behind you. That is awesome. Yeah, Thank if you go to the Zoom control panel, um, there is a setting in there where you can set it, and uh, that's a given. I've tried other ones, but this one is pretty cool. Oh, that one's really cool. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that. So my question uh, is this. Um, I started into dream yoga through uh, the Turgar classes that centered on Minyar's book last summer. And 
I spent on and off, and then I read your um, Dream Yoga book. And so when I started it, I was basically trying to fly. And my first set of experiments were, the first one was actually, I was really surprised. Ah, I have a dream. I'm in it. Yes. And I flew out of the dream. So then I realized I really need to stay in the dream. So I happen to be an architect and I do a lot of work on CAD. And so a lot of my visuals are manipulating space on screen. So I got into the position where I could spin things around or take what was the coordinate system of the universe of the, of the dream and shift it. And then I realized that I needed to record. I think you would suggest it, and I think uh, 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 Tim, um, Tim Olmstead suggested uh, learning to uh, record dreams. So I found that dictating in the morning, I, I happen to take a high blood pressure med, so I have to get up all the time in piss, which is great for <laughs> so me. Exactly, it's great for a nocturnal practice, totally. Exactly. So I dictated into my iPhone through Pages dreams. And then what I began to realize is uh, I've been through Jungian therapy a long time ago, that the texture and structure of the content of the dreams, I, need, uh, I seem to get very involved with. And so what's happening now is I have <clears throat> few... Um, semi-lucid or lucid encounters, but I have a lot of dreams and I'm getting into the whole texture of the dream. I'm wondering whether I'm getting stuck because I'm trying to figure out that because the dream seems to have all these meaning layers that sure. I think I should deal with if I'm going to fly around in it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I got you. Yeah. Great question, my friend. Yeah. So, you know, this, this um, kind of points to the notion of how there is a vast spectrum of usage of the dream state. Um, of which lucid dreaming, dream yoga, and the like is one category. And then there's whole other incredibly important, valuable category of what you're talking about, dream interpretation, Jungian analysis, that sort of thing. These are all incredibly viable ways to work with the mind as it's expressing itself in the medium of the dream. But they're not the same thing. And that doesn't mean one is more superior than the other even though some dream yoga aficionados would say definitely um, lucid dreaming dream yoga is more superior because you're awake to the dream, but that's a different issue. The idea here is you can use any dream um, for like, if you're having a lot of like interpretive material coming up, unconscious um, things being released, which by the way, tends to happen more when we engage in deep spiritual practice, because again, the master of the one-liner, Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, meditation is not a sedative, it's a laxative. And this laxative will dislodge all these dimensions of the unconscious mind, which can manifest in lived experience or can manifest in your dreams. And that's why dream, the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. And so what I recommend here, Glenn, is just relax into whatever dream situation is arising. If you're having a powerful dream, that seems like it's cathartic, it, there's some therapeutic components, you're writing it down, Perhaps you're even discussing it with your therapist and the like. Continue doing that. That's fantastic. But that's not dream yoga. <clears throat> that's just a way to use dreams in a more classical psycho psychotherapeutic modality, which is super helpful. I, I still do this all the time, um, when, especially when I have really important dreams that just seem supercharged. They're not lucid, but they are delivering something. Those are the ones I write down. I date them. I title them. And then I study them. Like, what is this teaching me? You know, what, I think it was 
I'm not sure if it was Freud. Um, I'm not clear on the attribution of this, but some, it could have been Freud who said something like in the interpretation of dreams, an uninterpreted dream is like an unopened letter. Um, and so if that's happening, continue to participate in that. However, that is not dream yoga. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit like what happens when you engage in therapy during the day versus meditation. When you're in meditation, you're not psychoanalyzing your thoughts. You're not interpreting your thoughts. You're altering your relationship to your thoughts. You're altering your relationship to the display of the mind as it manifests during the daytime arena. That's meditation. Meditation can be therapeutic, but meditation is not therapy, see? And that's really important. So in exactly the same way, when you're involved in lucid dreaming, dream yoga, you don't care about content. You don't care about interpretation. You're more interested in altering and transforming, transmuting your relationship to the contents of your mind, see? So that nighttime experience is absolutely correlative to the daytime thing. So nighttime dream interpretation is nighttime therapy, fantastic. Nighttime lucid dreaming and dream yoga is therapeutic, but it's not therapy. It's a way to establish a more lucid relationship to the contents of your mind. So do both, do both. If you're in a particular cycle where a lot of stuff is coming up and you're having all these kind of cathartic, illuminating dreams that warrant interpretation, go for it. And then if, if you find yourself kicking in a little bit later, you know, that kind of cycle of karmic maturation rolls over <clears throat> and all of a sudden lucidity comes back into play and then you start doing those. And so for me, the good news around all this, Glenn, is that you can use whatever's going on. You can bring whatever's going on onto the path. One is in a, in a therapeutic bandwidth. One is in a more spiritual bandwidth. Use it all. Okay? Thank you. Good deal. Nice question. Thanks, Glenn. Okay, next up is Ariella. And Ariella, you have the audio to ask your question. Where is Andrew? Hello. I can't see him. I see you, Andy. <clears throat> Where is Andrew? He's still uh, there. He's right behind. He's right behind you. Here he is. First of all, uh, can you hear me? Yes. First of all, I thank you so much for all that you are sharing with us, and I just really um, recognize it from the generosity of your heart, and it means so much. And at least for this person. It has enriched my life and my practice tremendously. So thank you so much. Um, <laughs> so last time I talked with you, uh, I was still on retreat in Crestone. Oh, and, right, right. Yes, yes. And since then I came home and I want to ask you what, if you could, if you don't mind sharing a little bit, how do you do dream yoga at home when you are not on retreat and you have a sure. partner and um, so that's one question it's all about dream yoga and um, uh, and the other thing is that one of the things that I was noticing when I was uh, during retreat is that you know as I was uh, you know, trying to, to bring more consciousness to that, that um, I was remembering a lot more, but a lot of my dreams felt like just psychobubble, you know, and I found that I, I just was not interested in them. 
I, because my, my focus was really in my prayer was always, I want to practice the Dharma in my dreams. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if because I was not paying attention to those dreams, I mean, I was writing them down, but they didn't seem to have a lot of juice. It really felt like a chatter, you know. Um, I was happy that I have a better recall, but I was, um, I wonder if somehow my disinterest in them had something to do with or was affected the fact that I was not having more significant dreams, or it's just something that you need to purge out until it's completely purged. Yes, okay, so two questions there. Uh, let's start with the second oh, one. Oh, one more, one more. might be enough. Two might be okay. enough. Okay, okay. Because just because there's so many other people. It's okay. So two might be enough. So uh, with your permission. Um, so the first one, second one first, on one level, what you said was really quite endearing. Psychobabble, I love it. Psychobabble, kesse, you know? Yeah. So many, many of our dreams, again, dreams exist along a vast spectrum from, from utter neurological noise, just meaningless discharge, to all the way up to what are called hyperlucid dreams of clear light, which are like life changers. And in between, you have this vast array of karmic display where, you know, um, it can be anything. But the important point here is, unlike Glenn's question, is any manifestation of the dream can be used for purposes of lucid dreaming and dream yoga. It doesn't matter. Even a little neurological noise hiccup can be used for the purposes of lucidity because then what you do is you can wake up to that. And then you unfold that dream within the structure of lucid dreaming. And so what this does on one level, that it actually empowers the, the dream, no matter what it is, as a potential avenue for practicing lucid dreaming and dream yoga. With that said, the other thing that is very interesting is a little bit like what you're talking about, that on one level, um, dream yoga practice can be akin to, again, like with Glenn's question, um, establishing a more kind of sane, lucid relationship to the display of the nighttime mind without getting sucked into that display. And so it's like Nisargadatta Maharaj once said so beautifully, it is disinterestedness that liberates. That's really interesting. It is disinterestedness that liberates. So now whether that ties into the fact, you know, maybe that's contributing to you not having more dreams, I can't answer that with authority. Maybe. Um, I kind of doubt it because we all have dreams sessions five or six every night. Most of the time we just don't remember them. Um, And so you can then do two different things here. One is you can use these little neurological hiccups as a way to trigger lucidity and then unfold that hiccup into an entire dream. The other is you can uh, practice what's called pellucidity or a witnessing type of awareness where you simply just sit back, so to speak, and just watch the fireworks without, without getting involved. I do this with insomnia. I mean, I don't even call it insomnia anymore. You know, I'll wake up sometimes and I'm in this kind of plasma state of mind, liminal state. I'm not awake. I'm not asleep. My mind's just doing all kinds of bizarre stuff which most people would probably say that's insomnia. No, to me, it's a celebration of the radiant play of my mind. Mm. And that is in fact the way I relate to it. Because if I relate to it in an adversarial way saying, oh crap, my next day is screwed. I'm not gonna go back to bed. That just feeds it. Mm -hmm. I I replace, oh crap with, oh wow. 
it's like, wow, it's in, in Sanskrit, it's this beautiful term, chatpankara, amazement, bewilderment. Look at what my mind can do. It's, it's amazing how crazy my mind is. Yeah. Wonderful, eh, maho? And so then I just watched that. And this is like, I almost celebrated like this 4th of July. Yeah. And the practice is I don't allow myself to get sucked in. I notice the hook, my mind's sticky. So I go there, oh, no, come back. Another one, oh, no, come back. Until I just watch the whole 4th of July display in a sense of wonderment and amazement. And that is a, a larger embrace of the nocturnal dream yoga approach, where even if you don't have a lucid dream, you can still practice a, a lucid relationship to the display of your own mind. See? Which, yeah. is, like the day which is like the daytime practice. It's the well, same. It's yeah. the same. It's the yeah. same. So that's no small thing. And the other question, just very briefly, again, because I just want to allow other people, how do I practice it? Well, I practice it every single night. <clears throat> it's in my system. <clears throat> I do a number of things. First of all, I do my evening meditation session. That's part of my lucid sleep onset, um, spiritual sleep hygiene thing. <clears throat> Sometimes I'll do a, a prana purification thing to expel the stale winds. I lay down and then I create, you know, um, this kind of temple of sleep where I have this whole little structure that basically allows me to pay deeper, deeper homage to the nocturnal arena so that I don't just collapse. It's like um, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche says beautifully. He said, you know, if you go for a long sweaty run at the end of the day, pretty unlikely that you're just gonna plop into bed all sweaty and dirty. You're probably gonna take a shower or a bath. So I try to go to bed by doing uh, some purification practice so I don't go to sleep with a dirty mind because that dirty mind, using the laws of proximate karma, will perfume, or in this case, stink up my dream experience. And then from there, I mean, there's, I have a whole thing. I do a liturgy of aspiration. Yeah. I'm doing dream yoga for the benefit of others. I do all my induction things. I set the yeah. stage. I do this every single night. It's just my default. And the mm -hmm. reward is, I mean, just last night, I mean, I had like an hour, um, solid, amazing, borderline hyperlucid dream. I mean, I have these things all the time. I'm not special. I've just done the work. Anybody that does the work can reap the rewards. Yeah. So maybe so do I'll, you have do you have a separate do you do you do you go to a separate room because I, I you know I, I do I go to my shrine room to start that's where I practice and then I just simply you know return to my bed and then I do all the things that I write about in my book. So maybe I'll just refer you to that and also the book. I did. Yeah, I do that. I do all of that. Yeah, fantastic. The thanks thanks to you. Summer, the book that's coming out this summer. Uh, the Lucid Dreaming Workbook is all about this sort of thing. And so and maybe I'll let that go because people can then, in a gesture, another gesture of self, shameless self-promotion, buy my next book. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you, dear. Yeah, thank you. Okay, great. Um, okay, the next question is coming from uh, Felipe. And now, Felipe, you have the audio to ask your question. One second. Hello. Sorry. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for this space. It's really valuable. I, I really appreciate. And I have a question that is trying to, part of the question has been answered by, by the previous question, but I will try to summarize it. I, I was reviewing my history 
uh, with lucid dreams and for me it was uh, like spontaneous when I was a child and it was related with the with the awareness of death that everyone in fact we are we're gonna die so for me that trigger uh, nightmares and lucidity and then different periods of my life as with uh, usually with change in my life like a, a restructure of my personality or or whatever my my life I was challenging so this was a period of, of lucid dreamings and processing and then finally I, I discovered the dream yoga and then give me a broader pers perspective and my life my my last uh, my, my last uh, nice period of lucid and, and practice of dream yoga was around like two years ago and because I have more like more time to practice and now because I have a different kind of work there the, the amount of practice daily practice has been reduced and this of course has been impact my my frequency of lucid dreams and even the practice of the dream yoga so for me, it's like um, I, I think it's the, the fact itself to to try to to have the experience of lucid dreams sometimes can be a huge um, resisting in itself because uh, you are attaching to that experience. But sometimes I just wonder what is going wrong. <laughs> I mean, what what is um i usually do practice of meditation i try to go one hour of a day of meditation and i try to do induction of lucid dream at night but i mean this kind of uh, uh, what can i say this kind of a special song when i get when i have like regular practice if i miss this practice is totally gone this i need to work again uh, to build again this kind of awareness that is like is uh, uh, is intersected day the day practice with the night practice. Sure. So I don't know if uh, um, you can talk about this. And finally, a short question, more more practical question, is about the posture. You say in the last meeting that right uh, side right side lighting is best for lucidity best for lucidity according to some uh, research and there are some practices that begin with right side lighting and then change to supine position and then the last two hours are free to put the body in whatever position you can do that that's the approach that i learned with uh, tensi wangel rinpoche but now when you say this that the right posture is the best one so I, i'm i'm trying to think that i need maybe i need to change the structure of the and live for the last two the last two hours of, of my sleeping time try to keep it in the right side lighting if you can talk about this kind of structure of the posture of the body during the, the day during the night it will be helpful sure. Thank you. yeah of course um yeah so a couple of things you know Perhaps the most important thing is experiment and see what works for you. We're all different. Um, these patterns, and even including these studies, are orienting generalizations and summaries of what seems to work in certain statistical kind of ways. But um, if you've been training with Tenzin Wangyal, for instance, he's brilliant. And it's, it's very similar to the Tibetan approach, Tibetan Buddhist approach, but not 100%. 
And so there's in no way is one better than the other. They're just different. And we're all different. I mean, it's one reason the Buddha taught 84,000 dharmas. That's an archetypal number. Because there are 84,000 styles of confusion, 84,000 idiosyncrasies, basically infinite different varieties. And so what I do with all these things is I, I simply recommend people be curious and say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how that works for me. And then you do the science. Then you lie down and say, okay, I'm going to try this thing. Does it work? If it works, great. If it doesn't, like the Dalai Lama says, throw it out the window. So what we, what we eat, we meaning the tradition, they just fill you, you know, your backpack with these different tools. And then the adventure starts when you set out on your own. You see what works and what doesn't. You fall down, you get back up. And the most important thing, my friends, you just keep going. And so with that said, find your own way. Just see what works for you. Um, I always get a little bit, you know, my radar comes up when somebody says, ah, this is the way you got to do it. This is the only way. Uh, I get a little suspicious about that because we're, we're messy, complex creatures with our own faculties and foibles. And so trust your own heart, trust your own experience, play with these things and see what works for you. Tenzin Wangyal's rendition of this in terms of the, the modification or alteration of posture throughout the night is idiosyncratic to his approach. The Tibetans are not that terribly interested to the degree that he is. And again, no dis, uh, uh, criticism at all. It's just his, his approach is different. If it speaks to you, do it. If it doesn't, try something else. In terms of the first one, there's a, you know, there's a lot said there, but um, I tried to suss out what the hard essence of your question was in terms of like what may be going wrong. Um, and I'm assuming when you say that, you, when you say what's going wrong is, is a decrease in the incidence of your lucidity, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Correct. So this is unbelievably common. And again, this is where a playful but determined sense of practice and humor are important because it's a little bit like, I, I think of what one of my beloved teachers, Dzogchen Panlipramuche, talks about in terms of devotion. It's great. He gave this riff on devotion where he said, devotion is not flatlined. Devotion is like an EKG. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. And in fact, if it was flatlined, you'd probably be dead, right? <laughs> So it is super common to have, and I've been doing this for 40 years, and I still have these periods where like you're almost manic. I mean, you're just on a roll, and, and especially if you're doing all that stuff, you know, the daytime things, and you're on retreat, lucid dreams every night. I mean, it's just like you're rocking it. You've got this thing down. And then you enter this drought, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, what happened? I mean, here, I thought it was on the cusp of being a dream yoga master. <laughs> Ah, that just doesn't work that way, right? So then you enter this drought and people usually get discouraged and, and you know, like I'm a loser, you know, I should do this. And so if you just understand, there are all these different forces of habit being played out, karma. And um, sometimes it's just, you know, it's manic, sometimes it's depressive, so to speak. And the, uh, the important thing um, is you just keep going. And uh, eventually, you know, you'll actually find certain, if you, if you did like a, a long statistical analysis, you'll find incidences of lucidity are actually taking place. It's also possible, my friend, and this is amazing, it's actually also possible you're having lucid dreams and you don't know it. Um, I used to think it was like, that's impossible. But I read a lot of really compelling data and talked to people that said, um, in fact, I've had some really interesting experiences in my programs where people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, you just explained something. You can actually have lucid dreams and not know it, and not remember it, 
It's the difference between what's called excess and phenomenal consciousness. Um, so maybe I'll leave it at that. You know, it, the, the bottom line is, it's exceedingly rare. In fact, I've never heard of it. For someone to hit the, hit the ramp of lucid dream yoga and all of a sudden they just like steady line towards full awakening. Maybe somebody's done that. I don't know about it. Certainly doesn't re resonate with my experience. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. You're going to have the highs. You're going to get lows. But it's like the incoming tide, right? The tide advances and recedes. The tide advances and then it recedes. But generally, if you notice over the years, there's probably a general advance. And that's just the way evolution works. You know, evolution works. It's called punctuated equilibrium. Evolution works in these kind of little hiccups of advance, retract. And if you understand that, you lighten up. You relax. You just say, like, whatever happens is fine. You maintain your exertion, but it's in certain balance with a sense of levity and playfulness. And then you learn how to find your own way, not too tight, not too loose. Um, like tuning an instrument, like the Buddha on the shoreline, right? Not too tight, not too loose. And I think within those parameters, you'll find your way. Most important thing, like the Dalai Lama says, never give up. You just keep going. Whether you know it or not, something's happening. You're, you're actually, you know, the Aliyah consciousness is being transformed, whether you know it or not. The effort, the merit, the karma, whether you know it or not, is flying below the radar. And it's working underground. You just may not have the fruit yet, but it's working underground. Um, so trust that. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thanks for the question. Uh, okay. Next up is Prem. And um, Prem, you have the audio to ask your question. Thank you, Andy. Oh, we're back at the beach. Back at the beach, Andrew. So, as you know, I'm a longtime student of classical yoga, Patanjala yoga, Raja yoga. Uh, and I'm endlessly trying to reconcile because I'm a newer student to Tibetan Buddhism. And something that I was reading just this past week where the Buddha said, Nirvana is the cessation of all discursive thoughts. And I'm, you know, as a student of Patanjali. I'm curious where you read that. Um, I read it in Lion's Roar. And who wrote it? I don't if you can't remember, I'm just curious to see who wrote it. But anyway, please continue. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, don't recall. Um, and then I'm thinking about, of course, the second sutra in the Yoga Sutras, yeah. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha, which we tend to always translate. You know, there's various translations, but in my tradition, we tend to translate that as yoga is the um, restraint of the waves of the mind. So we have this idea of restraint, or sometimes people talk about it as control, but then I'm thinking from the Buddhist standpoint, it's, it's the cessation, is it the self-liberating that you talk about? Could you sort of sure. a little bit riff on that? I can, yes. Um, and I'm gonna also point you to um, a, a tremendous scholar. Are you a member of nightclub? Are you a member of our- I am. Yes. Yeah. Re-listen to the dialogue I did with the professor, the Sanskrit scholar, Ben Williams. Re-listen to that. Because, in fact, because of that, I'm not going to go into tremendous detail because Ben and I riff on this to quite some extent. Right. Um, ben comes from a non-dual Shaiva Tantra point of view, Kashmir Shaivism. And most of what I'm presenting, in fact, dream yoga, 
is held within the context of what's called Vajrayana, supposedly, allegedly, and who knows. I'm obviously a member of the highest tradition, otherwise I wouldn't be a member of it, right? <laughs> My tradition is the best. It's the highest. Like, give me a break. It's just the one that works for me. The idea here, Prem, is that somewhat akin to the, the notion of the variety of dreams and, and how to work with them, is that there are, there are a variety of schools. And as beautiful and as noble as the Yoga Sutras and Patanjali is, and the Sankhya tradition that fundamentally espouses that, that's a provisional template teaching. From there you go to Vedanta. From there you go to Advaita Vedanta. From there you go to Nandul Shaivatantra, which transcends but includes all those. And so the reason I throw this into the mix is these are all incredibly viable paths, very similar analogous to the Buddhist spectrum, going from the Theravadan to the, I mean, all these really different from the South Tantrika, Vaibhashika, Madhyamaka, Yogacara, every wisdom tradition has these kind of analogs. And therefore, every wisdom tradition has its correlative antidotes to certain situations. And so it's really helpful to understand them all. And that's why I refer you to the conversation I had with Ben, because I, I actually retrospected, I, I fit in at the end of the question. I said, Ben, talk to us about where Patanjali fits in. So go back to that. But the idea is, these are all tremendously skillful traditions and practices that help us work with the display of mind and reality in all these different ways. It's, a, it's a, almost an embarrassment of riches. Mm -hmm. And so in my schema, I, I talk about, I write about this again, shameless self-promotion in my first book, um, Power and Pain. I have a chapter on what I call the four arts, which is my acronym for the four stages in the Buddhist schema, which is echoed in and also Hindu approaches of relating via abandonment, via remedy, via transformation, via self-liberation, hence the four arts. And, the, and what we call the yamas, including the fourth yama of Sahajayana, are in fact iterations of this. And so the take home message in this kind of long academic winded way is that Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras have tremendous power. But they're not the only story. They're, they're you know, everybody is like integral theory. Everybody's right, but partial. So Patanjali is right, but partial. So if that, sometimes if that framework really works, oh my gosh, use it. But you may find later that some of these different, you know, I would say more refined, but obviously Patanjali probably wouldn't say that. <laughs> That's fine. There are different applicabilities of bandwidth of skillful means for different um, experiences. And for me, it's like, you know, I'll take truth and skillful means wherever I can get it. I don't care. If it works, I'm going to use it. And so you fill your backpack, you know, all these different techniques. And if one doesn't work, you try the other. And, and even the Bardo teachings, this comes into play. Philip Ramachay writes about this beautifully. Because in a very real way, Bardo teachings, I, this is my riff, Bardo teachings are insurance dharma. I'm, I'm a cheap insurance salesman. <laughs> On one level, you don't need the Bardo teachings. They're just a parachute, a security blanket. And this is what Philip Ramachay says. You go on a long trip. It's nice to have plan A, plan B, plan C. Because if you get a blowout or whatever and plan A ain't working, pull out plan B, pull out plan C. In Bardo Yoga, in a certain sense, this is a supplemental yoga. Um, you don't really need it, but it's there for a reason. Pure Land teachings are, you know, from our perspective, supplemental. You don't really need them, but they're there for a reason. 
I mean, why not use them all? You have them. Um, so something like that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's why I, I think I am trying to take an integral, well, I practice integral yoga. And so Swami Satchidananda, of course, says to, you know, many paths to the mountaintop. So I think I'm trying to do an integration of Patanjali with this concept of, you know, so I'm playing with cessation and restraint and, and coming to just like, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. there's there's yeah. definitely a place for restraint. I mean, in fact, oh my gosh, we could I could talk about this. What a surprise! <laughs> it, it's tremendous length. I mean, there 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 are actually natural restraining orders by nature itself. I mean, I would say that sleep paralysis is the restraining mm. order. And so, the Ten Commandments. Every tradition has a set of rules, monastic disciplines, and restraining orders, regulatory agencies to control the unregulated ego. But at a certain point, you don't need those regulatory agencies anymore. So instead of repressing it with a more sophisticated relationship, you can express yourself. You can allow it to come out. You don't have to express it anymore, repress it, I should say, anymore. Why? Because now you have a more sophisticated, subtle relationship to it. Instead of repressing it, wow. you can celebrate it. And wow. Self-liberate. Wow, Andrew, you just created the bridge for me. Thank you. Got it. Thank you so much. Take care, dear. Great. Thanks for the question. Okay, next up is Karma. And Karma, you have the audio to ask your Karma. question. Karma. Oh, that's an intimidating name. <laughs> um, thank you for this opportunity to talk with you. Oh, my gosh. Look at your backdrop, my friend. Ah. Now, was that a screen or is that actually your shrine room? <laughs> I wish. It's a virtual pattern. Oh, it's fantastic. You got Padmasambhava, it looks like Tara, and then you probably got Shakyamuni Buddha right behind yeah, you. Yeah, he's there. I'm afraid yeah. I'm inviting him. Oh, that, that's just stunning. Andy, I have to talk to my, my, my tech guy, Andy Katz. You, you got to get this for me, my friend. So, <laughs> how do you pull this up? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's Buddha enough. It's, um, I got it from the internet. Really? Andy, take a picture. Yeah. We got to get this. Okay, I'll start working on it That's for just you. Awesome! I love it. Anyway, sorry, I'm so excited. I can't. Okay. Um, yeah, just going back to um, your original um, subject, which was uh, merit, and the other side of the coin to that is that, um, as far as I can see it, that uh, bad karma or bad actions um, can create um, hell realms. In in fact. For sure, they do. Um, and I'm rather concerned that, um, I mean, we're going through, uh, what we're going through now seems to me to be a bit of a bardo, almost a hell realm. Um, and I'm rather concerned that we're, if we don't really practice in en masse, that we could actually turn this planet into a hell realm within years. Um, so I think there's a, a huge urgency. And I, uh, I'm just very excited for the fact that um, Dharma practitioners, Dalai Lama and others are working um, with scientists. And there, there seems to be a sort of uh, synergy going on here. Um, but do you, do you think, <laughs> have we got time? Oh, have we got enough time to fix things? Oh, I mean, who has that crystal ball? First of all, I couldn't agree more with you. And it's this really painful, excruciatingly painful thing that that sensitives, spiritual practitioners are actually more in touch with these things. In fact, interesting studies that many so-called mentally 
ill people are actually more in contact with reality. Yeah. And their mental illness is a consequence of that exquisite hypersensitivity without a framework to work with it. And so this is the kind of thing that really concerns me and also breaks my heart, that what you're saying, I could not, unfortunately, agree more with you, that we are in, in fact, a bardo. The rug of conventional reality has been pulled out from under our feet. And what's really unsettling is, again, studies have shown that, unfortunately, the default under these normal under these situations generally is regressive. It's the attempt to patch Humpty Dumpty back together again. Mm -hmm. And that's what scares the bejesus out of me because this is nature's wake up call. Yeah. The alarm clock is proportional to the level of narcosis and somnambulance. We're so asleep that this is the type, this is the volume level that's required now to wake us up. Will it wake us up? I can only pray that it will. I'm not sure. I, I have hope, but it's a dangerous thing these days because of, of, because of the fundamental um, goodness of the human mind, that the teachings on Buddha nature and the divinity inherently. I have cautious hope along those lines. But you can't just sit back and expect this to happen based on hope. There has to be implementation strategies. There has to be revolutions in thought and hopefully the snow globe is being shaken to such an extent that it will resettle in patterns that are more in harmony with reality. Because what's happening here is, is this vast, exquisitely painful recognition that what we're doing is not resonant with reality. And there's no anthropomorphic retribution taking place. This is checks and balances of reality coming in and saying, again, without anthropomorphizing it, you cannot relate to the world in this way. You cannot treat the earth and sentient beings in this way. If you do, this is what you get. Yeah. And if we don't get that, then we're effed. I mean, it, it, it's not, again, I, I really have to titrate this sort of thing because if I don't, this gets me so down, I can't tell you. Um, but I am an optimist by heart and, and I, I do have hope but I don't think anybody except for a Buddha has the crystal ball that can tell you what's going to happen. I think what's important for us is what can we do about it? We yeah. start with ourselves. We arm ourselves with these skill sets, with the wisdom tools that we have. We inform, transform others with our teachings, with our presence, with our activism. Now is the time for enlightened activism. Mm -hmm. And that's the best that we can do. Um, and really that, but the doing here now is important. Applied spirituality, spiritual activism now is important. Get out the vote. I mean, with the implementation strategies there are, you know, a little bit well beyond the scope of what we can talk about. But my, my concerns are completely resonant with yours. Um, but I remain cautiously hopeful that the snow globe will settle in patterns that will be more healing that enough data will come out and science in its best sense will be respected. There's a tremendous amount of data collection taking place about the beneficial aspects of what's happening here. But, you know, it's this, it's this delicate dance between false positivism and uh, this kind of regressive depression that, you know, this is just gonna, we're all gonna just try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I pray to a God that doesn't exist, <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way. And so yeah. for me, it's like, what can, I do. Instead of sitting back in my armchair philosophy and reading more books about, oh, I'm just going to go to a pure land when I die. Mm. No, no. What can I do right now to change things? And I start with myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that uh, we need to awaken the, uh, the warrior side of the Bodhisattva here, actually. 
I, I couldn't agree more, my friend. Yeah. So it's 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 a uh, you know we are in a bardo, and it's like you know with your name. This is a karmic bardo of becoming. What will we become from mm. this? It's up to us. Yeah. It's up to us. You know. So let's all pray together and, and practice, and more importantly, get off our asses and do something. Could be a great opportunity. Could be. Yeah. They, you know they talk about the bardo. The Dalai Lama says, you know, the bardos are an extremely dangerous time. But conversely, they're an extremely opportune time. Yeah. And so, but the opportunity will not happen by itself. That's not the default. The opportunity yeah. takes place when we're informed and then we transform. Mm -hmm. So beautiful applied questions. So thank you, my friend. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, next up is John. And John, you have the audio to ask the question. John, are you there? Okay. Yeah. Hey there. Hi. Hey, Andrea. Hey, everybody. Hi. Are you related to are you, is Are you related to Jeff? Uh, no, actually, <laughs> but uh, I do love playing guitar and piano. I saw him. In uh, He's awesome. I, I was thinking about you. How is your piano playing? Um, Thank you for asking. Yes, it's going very well. I, I I'm I'm in a big Schubert. I play dead white man's music. I'm a classical pianist, so I'm in a big. Franz Schubert kick. I'm learning um, a number of the impromptus, Opus 90 and Opus 142. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's one of the great joys of my life, life is playing the piano. So thanks for asking. How, how often do you play? You play every day? Oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm so busy doing research and writing and all that. I wish I could, you know, when I was in music school, I practiced five to six hours every day. Wow. If I practice five to six hours a, a month, well, actually now it's more like, three hours a week. I'm thrilled. Uh, but thanks for asking. I wish I had more time. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was kind of like my main question is when I first heard about you, I uh, looked on your website and heard you're playing and uh, kind of reminded me of Keith Jarrett or something. And I just love his oh, improv. Yeah. I love it. Really, and, uh, those are the happiest years of my life when I, in my, what I call my bohemian years, when I studied music exclusively at Indiana university, I just loved it. But as you know, not so easy to make a living as a musician, so. Yeah. Do you have like a practice before you play or anything? Um, you're practicing all the time meditation, but is there any kind of um, anything you do to prompt to, to get into piano playing? Any? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, not really. Um, I, I enjoy the kind of absorption, the samadhi of making art. Um, and so I don't do anything like particularly preparatory when I sit down to play, you know, I just do my little thing. And, and then, you know, as you know, if you're a musician, the, the absolute joy comes from just the samadhi, the absorption in, in sound itself. Um, and because I am a musician at heart, I think a great deal, not to get too metaphysical, but about the relationship between sound and reality altogether. You know, I mean, fundamentally, the world is made of sound and light. Um, and music is just one artistic iteration of that. But yeah, thanks for asking, man. Oh, what, so what I wanted to write down, are you write, playing Schumann right now? Schubert, Franz Schubert. Schubert, Franz Schubert. Yeah, yeah the impromptus, Opus 90, Opus 142. And I always, oh, okay. I always play Bach. You know, I mean, um, he's my desert island guy. I always play Beethoven. I, I just, I played the classic stuff, um, Chopin. I mean, you name it. Rachmaninoff. Um, those are, my are you coming out with a, a, a CD or an album? Oh, I wish. Oh my God. You know, you know how much work it takes to crank out a CD? I know. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, 
I do have one as a, as a fundraiser. I don't know if it's available for sale on my website. It might be. I, I did create, oh, okay. I did create a CD. Um, Bach Italian Concerto, Beethoven, Opus 27, Rachmaninoff, Two Preludes, List Transcendental Etude, List Dante Sonata. Um, and so I put all that together about six years ago for a fundraiser, and it, it might be available on my site. Another moment of shameless self oh i will definitely promote that one yes i love hearing new music and piano any from I, a great meditator master teacher like you I, yeah yeah this is the first in all in all the years of doing these things you're the first person that's ever actually asked about music so thank you for that it's a huge um, passion of mine it's a, it's the great it's a lover that, that never leaves me <laughs> oh if you, if you ever do a dream yoga piano retreat i'll be there oh that's awesome i uh, would I would, I would have met you uh, when you came to Don Drubling with Dustin DePerna, but something important uh, came up for me that I was, I've signed up and everything. I was so looking forward to it. And Dustin, I was really bummed when I missed that. But, but, yeah. Maybe next I, time. So cool. Yeah. All right. Thank oh, you. My friend. Yeah. Thanks for uh, the contribution. I appreciate it. It makes me smile. Okay. We got time for a few more. Okay, great. Next up is Sue and Sue, you have the audio. Thanks Andy. Andrew, can I sign up to be the first roadie on your uh, tour for for the plane? Um, I, I had a question about illusory um, just perceptions, and I was going to say that um, the dream work has just helped me the most. I mean, when I'm falling asleep and I can watch one thought just go into a whole world yeah. that's created, that's just been so beneficial to me. And then I was thinking, and it was just perfect timing with your Tuesday class, because I was like, geez, my whole mind is the same way as a dream. I mean, it's just oh. a constant discourse. And I think, what was it called, Propancha? That was just so helpful, so helpful to see that, because just like a dream, I'm making this whole world in my head. But for me, it's, it's such a big step to go to seeing this world as a shared, you know, illusory. And, is, is the obstacles to that just because the ego is so strong, I'm still thinking of it as my world, you know, like partitioned off, or is it just once you can see the interconnectedness of everybody, then you can just see that it's all a dream. The obstacles, unfortunately, are formidable. I, I refer to them as the forces of the dark side, and they are, they're biological, they're phenomenological, they're social, they're cultural. They're, they're in the fabric of our very being. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not transformable. They're, they're just absolutely formidable because, um, you know, it's, it's supported by virtually everything, every entity, every discipline, everything is geared towards this view of duality and materialism. It's, it's the archetypal blind spot. Um, and this is why when you talk to people who aren't, you know, this kind of spiritual ilk, they don't even know how to respond to information like this. You know, to talk about reality as being made of something other than matter, you know, this is uh, a, an indication of just how profoundly, deeply asleep we are as a culture. And in, in addition, and to connect it with um, Karma's question comment, this is also one reason reality is is and again, don't be too anthropomorphic here, is rearing its head because we're so far out of harmony with the way things actually are. So the reason this is important all to understand, in, in the third book I'm writing in my Dream Yoga series, literally The Lost Temple of Sleep, 
um, integral dream yoga and the path of illusory form or something like that. It's, it's about an integral uh, approach and understanding of all these forces of the dark side. And in so doing, we can take a divide and conquer approach. We can start to tease apart whether, whether I use lucid dreaming as an archetype, you know, lucidity principle. Like why is it that we don't have more lucid dreams? This, this also ties earlier to, I think, Philippe's question. Um, it's the same reason we don't, we're not awake to the true nature of reality. Same, exactly the same thing. And so what I attempt to do is suss out, to parse out all these different strands that co-conspire to keep us so deeply asleep. And in so doing, we can gain a deeper sense of appreciation of the forces of the dark side, a sense of humor and level, levity, almost like, whoa, there's no wonder I'm so asleep. It's no wonder that this world is so asleep. Look how good I am. Again, I'll speak personally. Look how good I am at mindlessness, at self selfishness, at all these things. I'm a virtuoso in all these practices of non-lucidity and the dark side. Why? Principally because I unwittingly practice them all the time. And so by bringing these forces into the light of consciousness, at least we can now start to establish a relationship to them. Because if we do not, they will continue to do what they always do. They will fester at these unconscious domains. And this is where psychology and spirituality definitely unite and run and ruin our so-called waking reality. We are, we are, our lives, our so-called conscious lives, individually and collectively, are dictated by these unconscious processes, these dark processes. And if we don't bring them into light, this is what you get. So perhaps, you know, you know the darker things are sometimes, it's just before dawn, perhaps there's some light, I hope. But um, your question is a beautiful one. Um, it's incredibly important to understand so that we can then start to do something about it. Um, and you know, maybe I'll leave it at that for now, unless you have a follow-up. But it's huge. And just a quick follow-up. I mean, I I know that sensation, like when I'm trying to do the lucid dreaming, and I just want to go to sleep. I mean, it's just obvious to me oh, that right. sometimes that you just give up. You know, it's just too much work. Right. Easing out the things that you're talking about, because sense of humor is really important to me. Can Can you give like one? I guess like you were saying, just one thing where you could look at something and just kind of laugh at it almost to, to try to break through? Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Maybe say a little bit more. I mean, it's not clear what you're asking. Just because to wake up to, to being so asleep, you know, during the day. How, how to punch through that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or, how to punch through that with some humor. Well, I mean, for one thing, let's just be very specific. Um, be more humorous. Um, literally, uh, I, I, I mean, I love, I love jokes because on one level, this is just a uh, really bad joke with an even worse punchline, right? <laughs> but pay very, very, pay, pay very close attention. This is, this is actually the interesting thing to do. The next time somebody rips a good a joke, pay very close attention to your mind. There will actually be a little gap. There'll be a little pause. Often you hear this in, 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 with humorous. They'll crack a joke and then sometimes it, you know, it takes just a second till the thing registers. And in that gap, it's a very interesting period of time where, where uh, jokes work by kind of doing a little jujitsu on a narrative that's been established. And when that, when the heart of the joke is actually triggered, there's a tiny bar tilt, there's a little gap. And in that gap, you can actually recognize nature of mind. It's, it's like, I heard a beautiful, I think it was a rabbi, 
Ted Falcon, I believe, said something like, reality is touched through tears and laughter. Mm. Whether it's breaking down or cracking up, it's the breaking and the cracking that's important. And so allow yourself to crack, allow yourself to break, and realize in those moments that there's a glimpse, there's a glimpse. So uh, there's more to say, but maybe something along that playful line. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Thank I you, Andrew. Thank actually, you for all your work. You're welcome. I actually enjoy finishing my evening watching Colbert. I, I think you guys are <laughs> brilliant. And, and I play with this a lot. I mean, you know, his ability to just flip things and then boom, things are pointed out. So thank, perfect. Thank you. Maybe one more, Andy, and then um, I got to start entering my happy hour. Just kidding. Okay, great. Next up is Katie. Uh, Katie, you have the audio. Thank you. Hello. Hi, um, yeah. I have a question about actually death and reincarnation. Okay. So uh, I understand that when we go to sleep, we enter the formless nature of the mind. And often we're not aware of that. Usually we're not, but sometimes we can be. Uh, and then we come back to our form, which holds sort of like our habits, our thoughts, our sensations, our emotions, everything there. So when we die and lose our form, um, what sort of like holds together who we are for our next reincarnation? Yeah, great question, my friend. You have good questions. Um, this can be answered in a number of different ways, both relative and absolute way. On one, on an absolute way, nothing holds it together, um, but still something continues. That thing, of course, is in quotations because it's not a thing, it's not an it. It's it's uh, indestructible continuum, kind of the tantra, the awakened mind. That's what continues. Um, that's not so easy to define, but it's really the crux of the matter, and that's what we want to experience. Um, it's what meditation leads you towards. It's what you want to gain access to while you're still alive, because then you can, in fact, take refuge in that when you die. And then from that perspective, you can watch the entire display of the relative thing, which I'll next talk about, with complete kind of um, dispassionate, compassionate um, witness, awareness. From a relative point of view, again, there's a, a fair amount that can be said here. Um, what holds it all together, again, it depends on the framework of the system that attempts to answer this question. The one that, that I take most frequent refuge in these days are the teachings on the Yogacara. And here, they would put forth the, the, the construct of the eight consciousnesses. And in particular, in this case, it's the eighth consciousness, which is a slight misnomer because it's actually the first. Everything in the relative world arises from this eighth consciousness, the Aliya Vijjnana. And this is also called the storehouse consciousness. It's the repository of all our habits, literally, literally represented in this body. And so that habit, that kind of cascade of habits is then what holds it, creates the illusion of holding it together and therefore brings about the illusion of the continuity of consciousness. And, and so um, one of the things that's super helpful to understand here in relation to the Yogacara teachings around this are the more foundational teachings on emptiness. Because the Yogacara, you can, as far as you can go down in relative reality is the eighth consciousness. But that's just the bed of relative reality. That's where all the karma is kind of housed. 
Below that is the, is the so-called bedless bed, the groundless ground of absolute reality, what Buddhists refer to as emptiness. And this is incredibly important, in fact, indispensable if you really want to answer this, because it is our inability or um, to relate to, to this nature of reality and to emptiness proper that actually creates all the, re the relative cascading. And so uh, maybe I'll end with this really, I, I think, very interesting summation, at least in my opinion, because I made it up. <laughs> That's why it's so interesting. We take on existence moment to moment or life to life because we believe in existence. Let me say that again. We take on existence because we believe in existence. It's literally called Baba Samskara. This ties into that whole tradition. So another thing that holds it together if you really want to dive into this, another entire explanatory matrix are the teachings on the samskaras. All the stuff, by the way, we're talking about in the 10-week class if you're taking it. So that's coming up. The samskaras are your maker. So when, I, you know, when you die, you will meet your maker. Your maker are your samskaras, your repository of these karmic triggers. And so the most important thing is, again, really the importance of this cannot be overstated. You take on existence because you believe in existence. You get what, you, what you're asking for. So the issue is to avoid reincarnation, challenge the structure of existence. It's exactly what the teachings on, on emptiness do. And that's why they're the core teachings on Buddhism. And when you understand that, you realize, you're, first of all, you're reincarnating right now. Um, you actually don't exist right now. You're actually dying moment to moment. And it is our, your denial of the death moment to moment right now that creates the fear of the death at the end of life. And so understanding this stuff is critical if you really want to under, understand the incredibly sophisticated teachings on rebirth, reincarnation, karma, samskara. This is a very profound, deep battery of questions. And maybe for now, that's enough noodles thrown up against the wall. So something like that. Look at the Yogacara teachings. Look at the teachings on, on the five skandhas, and in particular, the teachings on the samskaras, both from a Buddhist and also a Shaiva Tantra point of view. The Shaiva Tantras, Tantric folks have really interesting things to say about the samskaras as well. So, cool. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. I try to shut this off at about the hour and a half mark. I appreciate it so much. Um, I will see you all next week, same time, same place. I truly, I really enjoy this stuff. I, I really love it. And thank you for your participation and the like. And again, between now and then, wash your hearts. Um, hey, interesting slip. Wash your hearts and keep your hands open. It's the same. Wash your hands, keep your heart open, same thing. Bye.